A picture-perfect family was turned upside down when its supermom went missing. For three long weeks, they feared the worst and raised nearly $50,000 for the search efforts. When she reappeared out of nowhere, alive and mostly well, she had a harrowing story for investigators that set the community on edge. What really happened after she went missing? This week's episode is Sherry Papini, Part 1. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. I've been wanting to watch Gone Girl for the past two <laughs> days because of all this research. This is basically real life Gone Girl. That's what people are calling it. This is uh, much like when we covered the Murdoch case. Uh, I was in the woods for part of it and was like <laughs> trying to get uh, service. I downloaded uh, some uh, an affidavit that I was able to read offline so I didn't have to have Wi-Fi the whole time. But I think that's how I know I love my job because I really <laughs> wanted to just look up more. And ever since I've been back from the honeymoon, been online looking it up, it's, go, I can't stop devouring the info. It's um, much like the Murdochs. It's all consuming. Yes, yes, There's yes. There's no and, shortage of information. And I don't remember this happening when it happened, but I think I first heard about this from a patron because they had posted saying they remembered when she went missing and how it was, you know, everywhere. And most recently there's been a lot of new developments. So it's been interesting to go back and read newspaper articles from when it actually was happening. Mm -hmm. And then what, you know, now, and you're like, a lot of people need to make some oopsie daisy uh, retractions to their statements. Yeah, it's fascinating to go back and watch interviews and then see how the case unfolded at the time uh, uh, now mm -hmm. and so see where we're going to go in part 2. But yeah, this I vaguely remember it being on maybe like 2020 mm -hmm. or what is it um oh the it come, the like NBC Nightly News oh, where yeah. they did like a little 3 minute like a mom went missing in California and, and came back after three weeks. Like, the search is on. Have you seen these kidnappers? Mm -hmm. And then they put the pictures up. But it was, you know, a five-minute segment two years ago or three years ago. So uh, it was definitely, we appreciate to the our Patreon subscribers and folks that have, you know, DM'd us about it and been like, hey, did you see these new developments? So it's a, it's a wild ride, <laughs> to oh, say yeah. the least. Yes. Well, we're happy you're back from your honeymoon. You didn't get kidnapped in the woods. No, nothing happened in the woods. I except I told you I had to go to the bathroom in a compost toilet, but that's the sacrifice you make when you stay in a treehouse bubble. So. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> your description of it was um, harrowing, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Didn't know I, Paris and I would get that close that fast, but well, that's married you life. You know what? That's <laughs> marriage brings it's in sickness and in health. So he <laughs> truly, you've already um, lived up to your vows so quickly. I love you whenever you can stay in the room. And when I yell, go outside, I have to poop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. you know, you, uh, all relationships need a little bit of mystery. You know, there you keep go. the romance alive a bit. We don't need yeah. to know everything that we, no. we do. 
I don't. I didn't know if we were still in the period where you could get it annulled. I've now mailed the license off, so it's like <laughs> I think you have ninety days. Deal. So, <laughs> yeah, mind your p's and q's for the next couple months. I mailed it in. I got the certified mail return Uh-oh. receipt, baby. Oh <laughs> uh, well, your relationship is already off to a better start than I think any of the ones Sherry Papini has been in. So you've got that going yeah. for you. Yeah, agreed. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Sherry Louise Graff was born on June 11, 1982, to parents Rich and Loretta in Redding, California. While not much is known about her parents, by all accounts, Sherry and her older sister Sheila had a typical childhood while growing up in Northern California. Sherry attended high school in Ceres, California, at Central Valley High School. According to friends interviewed by law enforcement, Sherry was crazy and wild as a youth. They told investigators that at age 16, Sherry ran away from home to Southern California, where she stayed with some other friends. According to the FBI, multiple friends recalled Sherry making up lies. Particularly about being the victim of abuse, especially as a youth. Sherry reportedly had a habit of lying in her romantic relationships, too. In 2001, she dated a man that the FBI would later refer to in reports as Man 2. Sherry and the young man had met at the Friday Night Live Youth Program, a California program that is designed for high school-aged young people and is motivated by youth-adult partnerships that create essential and powerful opportunities that enhance and improve local communities. According to its website. This gentleman's given an interview, and he was 15 and she was 20. I just feel like that's relevant. That's not legal. Yeah, he's like, at the time, I was like, this is great. And now, of course, I see that's huge red flags. Absolutely. But he said, you know, at the time, I thought, oh, great, I met this great girl. Uh, But yeah, he, I am assuming he's man too, because like I said, the FBI didn't name him, but he has, on Inside Edition, said, we met at Friday Night Live Mm -hmm. and we dated. Yeah, very early on from her young life, there seemed to be a lot of red flags and a pattern of... Lying, specifically lying about abuse and manipulation tactics and just really making up incredulous stories to get attention. And that's what he said as well in the Inside Edition Mm -hmm. interview. He's like, if she told me, he's like, she would tell me she had some medical condition. And he goes, at first you're like, oh, my God. But then later on she drops it and says she has something else. And you're like, the next time she tells you she has something, you're like, no, I bet you don't. The last thing you made up, too. So, And that was from, yeah, 2001. The couple dated for several years, most of which were fraught with problems. He later described Sherry to police as an attention-hungry person who told stories of being the victim of abuse from her family, her father, and then me after we broke up. Additionally, the director of the Friday Night Live youth program told the FBI that Sherry was the only student that they feared, according to the Daily Mail. The director explained that this was because Sherry was good at creating different realities for people so that they would see what she wanted them to see, which got her really good attention. I don't think it's ever good to be feared by a youth leader program. Uh, Not so much. Uh, And I, you know, when you go missing in 2016, you probably think they're not going to call the people I worked with in 2001 and have them. Yeah, they will. It's the FBI. They're real thorough. They'll call everybody. Or you just are so delusional that you don't care. These yeah. these types of cases really get my brain working overtime because I just think 
do you believe your own reality you're creating? Are you just a um, chronic liar that, -hmm. you know, I mean, I think we can all agree she's mentally unwell, but at what point did that develop? Did it start off where she's just, you know, like attention hungry? It's just so the whole mechanics of how people's like this, their brain works is just uh, both dark and fascinating. Agreed completely. Sherry married her first husband, David Dreyfus, in 2006. He was in the army and the two wed prior to him being deployed overseas. Allegedly, Sherry convinced Dreyfus into marrying her in order to have access to its government-funded medical insurance. Over the years, the reason she gave for so desperately needing the insurance changed. First, it was because she suffered from a heart murmur. Later, she said she needed it for health complications. She suffered as the result of repeatedly donating her eggs. The ex later told the FBI that he and Sherry never lived together or traveled together, except for one time when she came to visit him in Japan. Two years later, when Dreyfus returned to the States, Sherry told him she had met someone else and wanted a divorce. Dreyfus agreed, and the two were divorced in September of 2008, according to the Shasta County Court. And he's given interviews that have, you know, substantiated all this. He gave the information to the authorities. And, you know, if you're happy with a marriage of convenience and you're fine with that, while well, you're like, it doesn't bother, bother me. I'm not going to be home, so do whatever you yeah. want. Live in the house. If you both agree to that, then... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's fine. The man Sherry said she had met while her husband was overseas was actually someone she had met over a decade earlier. She had reconnected with her eighth grade boyfriend, Keith Papini, and the two had begun a romantic relationship. Of her relationship with Keith, Sherry wrote on her blog, It all started with a first kiss in middle school. He was in seventh grade. I was in eighth. I never imagined my middle school first kiss would turn out to be my husband. Echoing Sherry's sentiments, Keith told People magazine, She was my first kiss in seventh grade. You never forget your very first kiss. Do you remember yours? Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. Oh, that's right. Yours is, like, epic. (laughs) (laughs) I believe mine was named Matt Jones, which sounds like I'm making it up, but I think that was (laughs) actually his name. It was just very basic. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Jones. Yeah. What is it? Uh, What does she say on Brady? George Glass. George Glass. Yes, George Glass. George Glass. (laughs) Despite being legally married to David Dreyfus at the time, Sherry documented on her wedding blog how she and Keith happily moved in together in 2006, writing, Keith and I decided it was time for him to move in with me in December 2006. He moved into the townhouse I had been renting for the past two years. It was an interesting test to our relationship. Luckily, Keith grew up with an older sister and a wonderful mother, so he was already adjusted to the territory of living with girls. I, however, did not have brothers and was unaware of just how foreign living with a guy was going to be. Of course, we got on each other's nerves and got to know each other's habits. Thank goodness before we decided to get married. Aside from driving each other crazy, we became a lot closer as a couple and built a great foundation for our marriage. This blog is so nauseating. It's yeah. it's so it's like her wedding blog from 2009. I mean, there's all these blogs about how they met in their first apartment and when he proposed, but then there's tabs of the wedding party and everyone and I'm like, I would want my name removed from this blog if <laughs> if I was on this, but also like appointments that they had said, RSUPs. I mean, it's like their whole wedding website. It's just public. It's it's still it's still up in public, yeah. 
Yeah. So it's very interesting when I was reading and I even messaged you, I was like, I need to make sure because I'm reading that she was married to this guy, David Dreyfus, during this time. But unless she's trying to manipulate time, all of these things on this, which isn't within the realm of possibility, but all the dates she lists and the dates of like meeting with wedding planners and coordinators and getting their engagement pictures taken are all during the time when she's married to him. Yeah. So I was like, no, you're right. And the divorce certificate's right. And everything is right. It was just the marriage of convenience. They yeah. had a, a, they had an agreement. And I didn't realize at the time he was still, he was overseas the entire yeah. time. So that makes more sense. But yeah, I mean, I think again, it's kind of when you put all the pieces together and you're like, oh, and she was also like, okay with that. Yeah. They seemed to be. Trucking along mm-hmm. with the new relationship. And I believe Keith knew about it because he knew that she had, uh, he he later said, yeah, she needed the medical insurance because mm-hmm. of her heart murmur. And then there were also stories of, well, I think it's because she was donating her eggs a lot. Who knows if any of that's true? Nothing, mm-hmm. none of it's been confirmed. But she got her insurance. But so. she did get the, the insurance. Yes. She and marriage worked. <laughs> Sherry also recounted when Keith proposed to her on a romantic trip to Half Moon Bay in 2008, months before she was divorced from David. He walked me over to a little gazebo and said that he wanted to read me my birthday card. The sun was setting on the ocean. The waves were crashing. He read me a two-page tearjerker. I was crying my eyes out. I went to wipe away my tears and closed my eyes. When I opened my eyes, he was on one knee. Sherry, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? I almost fainted and then screamed, yes. She doth protest too much. (laughs) Her blogs are, I mean, it just screams of someone just begging for people to think I have this beautiful, amazing life and it's just storybook perfect. And, you know, I mean, it, the this whole engagement one goes on and on about how they went into the restaurant and everyone was congratulating them. And I mean, it was, you know, it's. It's just uh, real over the top and just so saccharine sweet that it makes your teeth hurt. Especially, I mean, if it was like, <laughs> I mean, maybe it was true. But if I didn't, uh, I think, believe what my quote to you was, I hate this woman with the burning passion of a thousand suns. <laughs> like, right. if I didn't feel the way I do about her, maybe this would all be sweet. But I just read it as, you're such a liar. You're a monster. Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, did that part happen? Maybe. And they go in the restaurant and one person goes like, oh, hey, nice. Good for you guys. And she's like, they stood and gave us a standing right, ovation. Yeah. And you're like, did they? Yeah, yeah. But it is like, you're right. It's uh, all about cultivating an image. Yes. It's very like wanting to control a narrative, cultivate the image. And like the person from the Friday Night Light Live said, you know, wanted to create this different reality so that we all have to see it how she wants us mm-hmm. to see it. Yes. And this was... Uh, before Instagram? Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Uh, But this is very, you know, like what we even see now with social media, you know, when people compare themselves to things they see on Instagram and it's like, but they're cultivating exactly what they want people to see. And this is the same type of thing. Yeah. And it's Photoshopped or the right angles or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sherry and Keith wed in 2009. 
They had two children together, a boy and a girl, and made their home in Redding, California, the same town where Sherry had been raised. Keith describes Sherry as a devoted mother to their children, telling People magazine, My wife's a very involved mother. She's always doing stuff. Sherry's sister-in-law agreed, saying in an interview with Inside Edition, We call her Supermom. She's an amazing, beautiful light of a person. On November 2, 2016, at 10.37 a.m., Sherry texted Keith, saying, Honey, would you please come home to have sex with your wife for lunch? According to FBI records, Keith wasn't able to come home, so Sherry went for a run instead. Keith finally made it home from his job at Best Buy around 5 p.m. He was surprised to find the house empty, having expected Sherry and the kids to be there to greet him. At first, he thought they may have gone on a nature walk. However, when Keith could not reach Sherry on her cell phone, he became concerned. His concern turned to fear when he learned Sherry had not picked up their kids from daycare. So this would be very alarming, especially if you have this mom that everyone says, you know, she's so devoted to her kids. Her sister and sister-in-law said, you know, she was doing projects with them every day at home. She was always gardening with them. They would go on these walks. They do scrapbooking. So to know that they didn't get picked up, I mean, that if I've got a call from Ella's school and they're like, Tommy hasn't picked him up and I knew she, I mean, I would immediately go into panic mode. Yeah, because you're like, that's our routine. We have our routine every day. Like, you do this at this time, I do this at this time. And when there's not a text going, hey, not going to make it to pick up the kids, do you think you could swing by or don't worry, I called my mom to come get the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just radio silence. And then also, yeah, your children. I mean, luckily they were at a daycare. You know, somebody yeah. had them. Yes. But still, yeah, you're like you said, your stomach drops and you're like, what's happened? It's, she would never do this. Especially when it's your kids. It's not like, oh, she forgot to go to the grocery store. It's like, she forgot to pick up our offspring, you yeah. know, or she didn't pick them up for whatever reason. Unable to reach his wife, Keith used the Find My iPhone feature to locate Sherry's phone. It led him to the intersection of Sunrise Drive and Old Oregon Trail, less than a mile from their home. Sherry's phone was on the ground near the road. It was playing the couple's wedding song, Everything, by Michael Buble, on repeat. Her earbuds were placed nearby, along with strands of Sherry's hair. Later, Keith told police when he found the phone, it appeared to have been placed according to FBI documents, which he described as weird. Keith reported his wife missing at 5.51 p.m. Almost immediately, police arrived on the scene and began canvassing the area and questioning neighbors. Multiple witnesses reported they saw Sherry jogging near her home on Sunrise Drive. One witness told police they saw her around 11 a.m., with another saying it was 2 p.m. Both agreed Sherry was wearing a pink running jacket at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's, as a neighbor, you just kind of clock it. Like, there's about five or six people in our neighborhood that walk every day mm-hmm. that I would know. And if they Same. go like, hey, did you see Derek walk by today? I'd be like, oh, yeah, I think it was, you know, this was on TV, so it must have been around this time. That you just, you clock it in your head like, oh, that's, there, she, there goes Sherry. You don't think, there goes Sherry. She's about to go missing. Yeah, and Keith said from their house to um, a mailbox down the road was like a mile. So she would run that to and from to do like a two mile run because where Mm -hmm. they lived was kind of rural. And a lot of the streets Mm -hmm. were either, you know, um, just gravel or they were paved, but you know, it was almost, there's not like curbs and stuff, you know, it kind of just like Mm -hmm. goes into the grass, more of like a a country setting. A countywide and later state and countywide search for Sherry began. 
Police searched their home and found nothing out of the ordinary. However, a search of Sherry's phone revealed something unusual. She had two numbers saved as women's names that actually belonged to men. The first man was from Michigan and had been in California between October 28th and November 2nd, the day Sherry went missing. When interviewed, the man confessed that he had met Sherry back in 2011 and, after spending a weekend together, exchanged flirtatious messages with one another ever since. Although he had been in California at that time, the two had not seen one another. The second number belonged to the man Sherry had dated from her time in the Friday Night Live youth program. Yeah, and so that's when, that, like I said, the FBI is calling your ex from 2001, the guy that you cheated on your husband with. That guy had gone to San Francisco, which is a, you know, a little bit north of where they, or maybe a little bit south of where they are, but it's you know, a couple miles away. That So he had a you know alibi, but you got to check every... But they'd also had plans to meet. I mean, they checked their, mm-hmm. their Texting. her text messages, and they had had plans to meet, and they just didn't. I mean, he, he dodged a, a huge bullet. Mm-hmm. Getting t- caught up in that whole web, but yeah, when you your wife's gone missing, you find her phone. It kind of already looks suspicious, but you're I mean you're just panicking, thinking the worst. But then they they're like, well, she has these names in here. These are really guys. Mm-hmm. For me, the wheels would start turning. Of she is not as faithful as the wife as I perhaps thought she was. Well, yeah, and, you know, from anybody's perspective, you know, you think, okay, my my wife is missing. Take her phone. Look oh, yeah. through it. Look through everything. I don't care. There's nothing to hide. He didn't ask for search warrants. He let them in. He nope. let them search car, house, computers, phones, everything. And, boy, did they find stuff. <laughs> but, I mean, I, in the beginning, and it's still, we still aren't really sure how much Keith knows. I was questioning his... Um, things in the beginning but once you see like him on good morning america and the news like just in tears pleading for her if it's an act he deserves an award because it's Mm -hmm. it's very convincing and he seems genuinely just broken yes and especially the vulnerability with being on the news crying and then also if there was you know if one was going to plan some sort of ruse Mm -hmm. or conspiracy one would maybe play things a little bit closer to the vest and not just give the FBI the keys to the kingdom. Yeah, exactly. Which is what he was willing to do. I also would hope that you wouldn't involve your kids in things. (laughs) No. With no sign of 34-year-old Sherry and what looked like evidence of foul play, her friends, family, and the entire community of Reading was shook. Violent crime had been on the rise in Reading, and everyone feared that Sherry had been abducted. Keith's older sister, Suzanne, told the Desert Sun. I would say my personal reaction is that it's twofold. One is that it's good to have some sort of clue. The other portion is that it really points to that she's been taken. I mean, she wouldn't just drop her phone if she were running away. So at least it's giving us some kind of information, but it, it's pretty, we're sick. This is a pretty sickening situation. Suzanne concluded. It's terrible. I'm just in a state of being emotionless so that I can do what needs to be done and take care of my brother. This is where things just get disgusting. As far as playing it up that... Your family is beside themselves. I could never in a thousand, million, gazillion years knowingly do something like this to my family. Yeah. I mean, and at this point, they all they all thought truly she's been kidnapped. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's what I'm saying. Like you're 
He said the children, because I believe at the time they were two and four, you know, that's young enough to not really fully understand what's going on. Thankfully, they're older now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, the internet. Yeah, they got the internet. And I mean, they're only going to get older and find out more stuff as they do. But it's just to know that you're putting your family through such grief is just uh, you're a monster. Well, and statistically, most times when someone like this goes missing, they are not returned safely. Correct. They, don't, yes. they do not live. So after a certain number of hours, you know, and I all glory to the law enforcement in this case. They worked the case. They worked hard. They were really out there looking. Do they do that with all missing people? Not usually. But in this case, it was really high profile. And she was a very attractive, uh, white, blonde woman. Yeah. And, I mean, we know statistically they're more likely to get more resources mm-hmm. put towards them. It's just a fact. And on top of that, you know, you have a family that's doing what they can, which they think is grieving publicly in the media mm-hmm. to try to make some sort of a, a plea to who are the kidnappers. Raising but money. But part of you in your gut probably does think, yeah, the cops are working hard. Yeah, we're raising money on GoFundMe, but she's probably dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I believe uh, if the show, the title of another, or what is it? Not another. The first 48. If the title of the first 48 tells us anything, after 48 hours, statistically, they're not coming back. So after a week, I mean, your heart is just, every day that passes, you're just more and more grief-stricken. Mm-hmm. Sadder that you're like, this is the new normal is just her not being around. Yeah. The following day, a massive search involving law enforcement on both the ground and in the air was underway. Police began looking into 290 registered sex offenders that lived in the area surrounding where Sherry was last seen. Within 24 hours, Secret Witness of Shasta County, a private nonprofit made up of citizens dedicated to preventing and solving crimes in their community, announced a $10,000 reward for any information leading to the whereabouts of Sherry Papini. By the next day, Sherry's family announced they would contribute an additional $40,000 for a total reward of $50,000. And they had the GoFundMe going? Yeah, I mean, they're they're doing everything they can. They're doing anything. They're doing everything that anyone would do to try and get their loved one back. Yeah, and the GoFundMe said, you know, every dime will be spent to try to bring her home and whatever we need to, you know, and... People saw it on the news and started donating. Mm-hmm. Just like me and those eagles. <laughs> we got a refund. You did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check the card. It, it automatically refunded. Wait, you donated on the company card? No. Oh, you mean just your personal? You check also your personal- donated. Oh, okay. Correct. I have not I also checked, donated. so perhaps I got a refund. monster. <laughs> I was going monster. to allow my $50 to go to whatever bird needed it the most, so I was no. fine with it being gone. You can now reallocate that $50 to another You know what? Bird. I will because I had already allocated it for the Eagles. So now I'm going to donate it to the um, Dallas, the Audubon uh, oh, that's a great idea. wildlife thing. That's what I'll do. Desperate to find their loved one, Sherry's family turned to the media. An emotional Keith tearfully pleaded for his wife's safe return on a local news station. Bring her home. I'm coming, honey. I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can. And I love you. Keith was cleared of any possible involvement in his wife's disappearance after passing a lie detector test. Additionally, Sheriff's Lieutenant Anthony Bernane said that there was no physical evidence linking Keith to the disappearance and that his alibi of being at work checked out. I mean, everyone always looks to the husband, but he was 
pretty quickly cleared of of any kind of wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, he, he was submitted himself to a lie detector mm-hmm. test, let them search everything, let him talk to his employer. I mean, it was an open book. Yeah. Fifteen days after Sherry was last seen, the website SherryPapini.com suddenly appeared online. While it was unclear who set up the page, it called for the immediate release of Sherry and promised a ransom for doing so. The post went on to say that the deadline for her release and subsequent reward was 5 a.m. on Wednesday, November 23rd. The benefactor for the ransom remained anonymous. However, a man named Cameron Gamble, who described himself as a kidnap and ransom consultant, according to Reading.com, said he would be the one to facilitate the transaction. Law enforcement, who was not working with Gamble, cautioned the Papini family against the plan. They warned them this could be very dangerous and make them the targets of scam artists. Yeah, once you start getting on Good Morning America, you start I mean, even in the local news, you start going, people are going to come out of the woodwork, if, volunteer to help you. If people know at minimum there's a $50,000 reward, and I believe later I saw something that um, the anonymous donor, at one point I think they said it was like $100,000, but at the time they weren't telling anyone what it was. But if someone knows that like, oh, we could just show up and beat the shit out of somebody and get this money that they're going to have in a suitcase or whatever. Like I remember when I lived in Florida, that was a thing that happened to this old woman who her dog was missing and there were missing dog posters all over town where I lived and it was a Boston Terrier and I had a Boston Terrier at the time. So I was like very invested in the story and she posted a reward and somebody said, oh, we have your dog. We'll meet you. And then they just like beat her and took her money. And like police came out of the news and were like, this is a thing that's pretty common. Like if you're going to offer a reward, make sure you do so like in a very public place, have someone with you or have it be like at a police station because mm-hmm. people, there's a lot of bad people out there that will do a lot of bad things for money. Yeah, and take advantage. And the Daily uh, Beast called Gamble a obscure self-defense coach who appears to have inserted himself into a woman's disappearance to parlay it into fame and fortune. They called him a shady hostage negotiator. So It was weird. It was very strange. And he was very defensive, saying, I have done nothing to impede the investigation. Nothing I'm doing is illegal, blah, 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 which perhaps that's true. But also, you could be causing a lot of damage to this case. Yeah, and there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. They don't need you. <laughs> yeah. Cameron Gamble, fake name. As of November 20th, 2016, law enforcement had served more than 20 search warrants and had received over 400 tips on the possible whereabouts of Sherry, according to Redding.com. Still, the supermom could not be found. When the November 23rd deadline for Sherry's release came and went, the ransom money, an amount that still remained undisclosed, was combined with the $50,000 reward money, according to a video posted on social media by Cameron Gamble. On November 24th, around 4.30 a.m., California Highway Patrol responded to several 911 calls that reported a woman running in the middle of Interstate 5 in Yolo County, approximately 146 miles south of where Sherry Papini had last been seen. The woman was Sherry, and she was in bad shape. She had a chain around her waist that bound one arm and bindings around her wrists and ankles. She had managed to flag down a passing motorist for help who called 911. She was taken by ambulance to a local hospital 
where she was examined and cleared of any trace of narcotics or any signs of sexual assault. Doctors immediately began treating her for multiple bodily injuries. Yeah, and I, I think it was the truck driver saw her. I mean, she yeah. was in the middle of the highway waving. There's also um, footage from a church that was nearby that captured her. She first ran down the road to the church and mm. to see if anybody was there. So you see her, you know, in the distance from this camera, just hauling ass toward the church. And then a few minutes later, she runs back the other way because it was no one was there. So she goes back to the road and that's when she flagged down a motorist. It's also very chilling to watch that video because, you know, knowing what we know now, it's like watching um, a movie being made almost. Well, yeah, or just kind of seeing the part being played out. Yeah. Like in all its, you know, I mean, like, uh, you know that it's what's going, what's really going on, but she's still playing this part. And 4.30 in the morning, running around the dark on the highway. That's dedication. It's method. <laughs> Friends and family had gathered earlier that morning at the annual Turkey Day Trot to release yellow balloons in honor of Sherry and to pray for her safe return. Two hours later, they got the call that she had been found. For the next few days, Keith barely left his wife's side. He recounted their reunion in an exclusive statement to Good Morning America. It read in part... Nothing could have prepared me for what I was about to see upon my arrival at the hospital, nor the details of the true hell I was about to hear. My first sight was my wife in a hospital bed, her face covered in bruises ranging from yellow to black because of repeated beatings, the bridge of her nose broken. Her now emaciated body of 87 pounds was covered in multicolored bruises, severe burns, red rashes, and chain markings. Her signature long blonde hair had been chopped off, She has been branded, and I could feel the rise of her scabs under my fingers. She was thrown from a vehicle with a chain around her waist, attached to her wrists and a bag over her head. The same bag she used to flag someone down once she was able to free one of her hands. Sherry was taken from us 22 days ago and suffered incredibly through both intense physical agony and severe mental torture. My reaction was one of extreme happiness and overwhelming nausea as my eyes and hands scanned her body. I was filled with so much relief and revulsion at once. I imagine it is very shocking to walk in and see your loved one like this. He said that the cops told him, brace yourself for what you're about to see. But, you know, I don't know if you're ever fully prepared to see that. And then as she recounts the hell she has been through for nearly a month. I mean, you're so happy she's back because by three weeks... You're holding out hope, but like we said, you're Mm -hmm. assuming we're probably not going to see her again. And then she just turns up uh, almost 200 miles away on the middle of a road with a wild-ass story. Yeah, and I mean, there's, you know, documentation of the injuries. Like, this was, she did have. Oh, yes, there's pictures. Bruises on her face. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it makes you sick. Yeah. Yeah, it makes you, as uh, the spouse, you know, you think, God, I just wish I was there to protect her. Mm Mm-hmm. As Sherry described the torture she had endured for the prior three weeks, police collected her clothes for evidence and DNA testing. Rather than the running tights and tops she had been wearing when she went missing, Sherry had been found wearing a sweatshirt and sweatpants. Testing showed the DNA of an unknown male, not Sherry's husband. After uploading the DNA to CODIS, law enforcement was unable to find a match. 
So yeah, it's interesting that it is male DNA. Yes. Yes. Over the course of the investigation, officers from the Shasta County Sheriff's Office and agents of the FBI interviewed Sherry several times. Initially, she stated she did not trust law enforcement. Rather than have officers interview her, Sherry would only respond to questions asked by her husband. She told investigators that her abductors told her police were involved in her kidnapping, which explained her hesitation. Sherry quoted her abductors, saying, She was laughing at me, saying, No one believes you. Everyone thinks you ran away. No one believes you. Guess what? The buyer's a cop. They're never going to find you. Is that allowed? I mean, where instead of talking to cops, they can just bring in your husband and they basically just say, okay, ask her this and we'll just watch watch this interview take place? Uh, well, Yeah. You can have, you know, if the police will let you have somebody in the room with you and you're fine with them being in the room with you. It's a little bit like shun, like unshun. Yeah. Tell them this, reshun. Like, I hear you. You hear the question from the cop, and then he just repeats it to you. You know that we can see and hear you, right, Sherry? We're sitting right here. We're all in the same room. But, yeah, she they said that, yeah, she would just be like, I can't talk to them. I don't want to tell them anything. I don't trust them. Um, well, she's creating told, a narrative right from the beginning yes. of, like. They told me you were involved. Yeah. yeah. Right from the start, Sherry described her abductors as two Hispanic women, saying, there was an older one and a younger one. They were Hispanic. They spoke Spanish a lot. She claimed the abductors always wore masks and gloves. She described entire personalities of each of them, including that the older one was... Mean. While the younger one was... Seemingly reluctant. According to the FBI. Sherry described their physical appearances, including hair type, weight, height, the sound of their voices, and the thickness of their eyebrows. She said the younger abductor wore... Large hoop earrings and had hairy arms. She also said both of them were clean and smelled of detergent. It was highly detailed. A lot of descriptive uh, characteristics, a lot, a lot of details. Entire, like I said, entire personalities. She talked about the older one would scream at her and the younger one would be more gentle. Like when they were, she was trying to take a shower, they would take her into the shower. The younger one would stand behind her hold her up when the older one would scream at her that she was taking too long. The younger one would, you know, be like, it's okay. It's okay. Take your time. Mm -hmm. Real good cop, bad cop type of scenario. I had the exact same description for my imaginary friend as a child. So I relate. <laughs> oh, that they did all the bad stuff and you were the no, good one. Well, they just, they all had personalities. You'd be oh, like, well, yeah, yeah, then yeah. they did this. This is what they look like. Yeah. This is what, I mean, she was down to like, what, she said that the older one's eyebrows were thick and bushy, but the younger one looked like she had plucked her eyebrows too much. Again, she doth protest too much. Real detail. Mm -hmm. Shasta County Sheriff Tom Basinko held a press conference describing Sherry's alleged abduction and abductors. Residents were elated Sherry had been found alive, but were fearful that two dangerous Hispanic women were on the loose. Law enforcement began looking into potential suspects while Reading residents celebrated the supermom's return. I mean, they were hosting, you know, big coming home celebrations. They a bunch of them gathered in front of the county courthouse and took a picture like, welcome home, Sherry. You know, I mean, leaving flowers at their house and, and all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah. And then meanwhile, keep your eyes peeled because mm -hmm. that might be the woman that abducted Sherry. Right. Yeah, yeah. In her statements, Sherry described being on a run the morning of her abduction when two women drove up in a dark black or navy blue SUV. One said, 
Can you help me? When Sherry got near the SUV, the abductor opened her door and held a gun on Sherry, saying, We don't want to kill you. Sherry said the women wrapped something on her head and that she fell asleep on the drive to where she would be kept. Detectives asked Sherry what music she remembered from the drive, and she told them, Mariachi music. So she's going above and beyond to really hammer home that these are Hispanic women that that did this to her. She also said, yeah, they said, okay, well, if it was music playing, was there commercials? So could you tell maybe where you were at? Like, come to the Dallas Civic Center or whatever, you know, where they mention a city or something. And she's like, there were never any commercials. It was just music. Well, but also I was asleep. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I was kidnapped and somehow I fell asleep after being kidnapped. I don't think I'd take a nap. I mean, I've never been kidnapped, but I don't think I would take a kidnap nap. Because they tell you, you know, you're if you've been kidnapped, this is like back in the day, like street smarts, mm-hmm. right? They're like, try to remember how many turns you took. Right. Try to count how many, you know, and but I, my sense of direction is terrible. Oh, so God. They'd that never find me. I, no. Yeah. I could be I'd in my backyard. Count. I would have, they'd never find me. No, but yeah, she made sure to say it was, mari- there was they were listening to mariachi mm-hmm. music. Yeah. Which everyone knows that's just like the most popular type of Latino music. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's it was, not. uh, Very much a bunch of stereotypes she was giving them. Yeah. When asked what she remembered about her captivity location, Sherry told the FBI. They would play music loudly, that really annoying Mexican music. She gave agents details of the types of food she was fed and the layout of the bedroom and bathroom she was held in. She described a very specific coffee table as well as a pole running up and down the closet in the room where she was kept that she said her captors kept her tied to. When Sherry tried escaping, she told the FBI. That's when she branded me. She recounted the branding, saying one of the women held her down, while the other burned into her back with a small tool, similar to a screwdriver. Sherry also described the sounds outside her window and said it was cold. Investigators concluded she had been held in a mountainous location, so the authorities diverted resources into searching areas of higher altitude. Yeah, tons of more details. She said they gave her cream of wheat, they gave her tortillas, beans, and rice, and then it all tasted like crap and was disgusting. And they would whip the door open, throw the food at her, and slam the door in her face. So not only are they diverting resources to go search in the mountains, I mean, they are spending a ton of resources looking for her. They're going and interviewing people outside of the state. They're sending law enforcement everywhere. I mean, this is costing taxpayers Thousands and thousands of dollars to not only to when they were trying to search for her, but now trying to find these these alleged abductors. Yes. And whatever, wherever this layer is. Yeah. Yes. And she also said, oh, I heard the TV. But then they go, OK, well, what did you hear on the TV? Well, it was in Spanish and also it wasn't very loud. So I couldn't really hear anything. Yeah. It's like, well, then why did you fucking bring it up? Well, you know, <laughs> another detail. Over the course of the interviews, some of the details Sherry provided would change. In one interview, she said she was branded for trying to escape, telling investigators, I tried to get out the first time and that's when she branded me. In another, she said she was branded because that's what the buyer liked. At another point, she stated she was branded for making too much noise. Agents would have to interview Sherry repeatedly and told her there was a reason for each question. According to the FBI, Sherry explained that she understood because she watched a lot of crime shows on television. In an effort to explain her inconsistent stories, Sherry told police she had been tased. According to the FBI, 
She then asked whether her memory could have been disrupted by being tased. Detectives told her that it could not. After that, Sherry no longer mentioned being tased in interviews with law enforcement. I don't know that just watching a lot of crime shows that you understand how a taser works, it sounds like. No, but I think you understand enough to where you're like, okay, I need to say that they pulled a gun on me, put something over my head, threw me in the car. I'm also going to throw in this, you know, caveat where I don't have a ton of details because I don't speak Spanish and everything's in Spanish. How convenient. Mm -hmm. Should have been doing your Duolingo app or pay attention in high school. (laughs) Right. The inconsistencies in her stories and lack of evidence, and suspects, caused some to question Sherry's alleged ordeal. In a statement to Good Morning America, Keith Papini addressed those that doubted his sweet Sherry's story. Rumors, assumption, lies, and hate have been both exhausting and disgusting. Those people should be ashamed of their malicious, subhuman behavior. We're not going to allow those people to take away our spirit, love, or rejoice in our girl found alive and home where she belongs. I understand people want the story, pictures, proof that it was all not some sort of hoax, plan to gain money, or some fabricated race war. I do not see a purpose in addressing each preposterous lie. He brought a lot of brought a lot of things in there that uh, some people pointed out. The use of the word "subhuman" is uh, in white supremacist skinhead groups. That "subhuman" is how other races and religions are uh, often described. Oh. So that's an interesting choice of words, and then also just saying race war, like bringing up yeah. that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and um, there was an incident uh, in 2007 that uh, a MySpace blog that was linked to Sherry, she says she did not write it. Correct. But I believe it was um, a very racist blog specifically about some Latino girls. Yes, she talks about how they did not like her because, quote, I was drug-free, white, and proud of my blood and heritage. This really irked a group of Latino girls who would constantly rag and attack me. Again, it was posted under her name. She claims she didn't post it. I'll say it was posted on her blog. But she said it wasn't her. She said it was awful. David Dreyfus, who she was married to, said it was a bully from high school that did it. That might have been the version he was told. I don't know what, where he gets that information from. But the language in it of the last bit, she says, being the author of the post says, being white is more than just being aware of my skin, but standing behind skinheads who are always around in spirit as well and having pride in my country. Mm. So that's, you know, that stuff started coming out around the time yeah. that she had been found. There was also Reddit. Uh, entire subreddits were dedicated to it, message boards, all this, you know, people, much like we saw, you know, with any of these big cases, don't fuck with cats, the Gabby Petito, this case, even like the Boston Marathon bombing, you have these kind of armchair sleuths that start putting the pieces together. And in this case, a anonymous person who claimed to be related to the ordeal came forward and gave an interview in Heavy Magazine and said, she did this before when she was 16. I think that it's the same thing again. Mm-hmm. Still, many wanted answers, especially those that had donated to the family's GoFundMe campaign that had been set up titled, Help Find Sherry Papini. The page had stated, Please help us in raising money to bring Sherry home safe. All funds will go directly to the Papini family and will be used for search efforts to find Sherry and to help bring her home safely. Every dollar counts as time is critical. Thanks. In total, the GoFundMe campaign raised approximately $49,070, 
donors were now wondering what the money was going towards. Because if you think, okay, well, it was a ransom that we had to pay Mm -hmm. or the police stopped investigating, so we had to then hire our own investigator, that wasn't what the money went to at all. Yeah, because the family had hired their own private investigator. So, yeah, when you're like, okay, but now she's back, so Mm -hmm. now, like, where's this money going? I know where it went. Yeah. Paid off a bunch of credit cards. We paid off their credit card debt and they used it to pay some expenses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Family member Rod Rodriguez III took to Facebook to defend both Keith and Sherry. He explained how Keith had been cooperating with police every step of the way and allowed them to search his house and cars without a warrant. Rodriguez also stated that Sherry had shown no signs in the days leading up to her disappearance that she had plans to abandon her family, saying she had left a message. Claiming dibs on cooking sweet potatoes the way the kids liked them for our upcoming Thanksgiving dinner we were hosting. Hardly the actions of someone planning a disappearance in two days. Or it's just the actions of someone planning a disappearance in two days, and they want you to think that they wouldn't possibly disappear in two days. Also, leaving the family without sweet potatoes, you monster. <laughs> I'm not a sweet potato fan, so I'm fine with that. I would have been like, or right, if anyone has to go missing that from this potluck, it can be the sweet potato person. <laughs> If it's the regular potato person, I walk. If it's the stuffing person, Thanksgiving's canceled. (laughs) Shut it down. (laughs) Amidst circulations of doubt, Sherry continued to emphasize to law enforcement how her abductors were Hispanic. She repeatedly told investigators that they spoke Spanish and said that while she was being branded, she remembered hearing the words, Deja, puta, mira, and friolenta. She told investigators she couldn't provide them more information because of the language barrier, saying, I listened so carefully, but it was all Spanish. When they did speak English, Sherry quoted them as telling her, We sell you, and buyer's cop. Though her description changed as to which abductor told her the buyer was a police officer. First, she claimed it was the older one, but later her story said it was the younger assailant. Deja is let, like, let me go or let do that. Puta is a slur for women. Yeah, it's like a derogatory term for women. Mira is like, look. Mm -hmm. And Friolenta is somebody that gets cold easily, like a female that gets cold easily or is, like, sensitive to the cold. So interesting that – and she also said she heard some other phrases like, oh, they talked about medicine. They talked about traffic cameras. They talked about gambling. So just kept saying, well, it was in Spanish, so I didn't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At one point during the interviews – Sherry related how she tried to fling herself onto the younger captor during shower time, causing Sherry to cut her foot and have it drip blood. However, images of Sherry's foot from the hospital the day she was found showed only a scrape. Her husband showed photos to investigators in an attempt to corroborate her story, but the injury did not match her description. Sherry then admitted that she had exaggerated the incident in the earlier interview and apologized that she had pumped up the description, according to the FBI. This is a, there's a lot of Keith uh, offering stuff to the police that then uh, turned out to be not helpful. Like, he goes, look at this picture of her foot. They go, well, she said it was sliced open and gushing blood. This shows that it was, like, scraped. And he's like, oh, my, oh. Oopsie. Yeah. And then they go, hey, what's the deal with that? You told us it was this. And the photo says, well, yeah, you know what? You're right. I'm like, this is where, you know, people go, oh, like, does, does Keith know what was going on or not? I don't know. That seems like if the behavior did- of a enthusiastic husband yeah. or yeah if he did he's he's fucking it up for them yeah it seems like he's was trying to 
ha- really help everyone believe her. Yeah. Sherry explained her cut hair, saying the abductors came in one day toward the beginning of her captivity and chopped it off. They told Sherry they'd be sending her cut-off ponytail to her mother. Sherry used this statement to conclude that the abductors did not know her, because if they did, they... Wouldn't send my hair to my mother, but would send it to my husband. There's, yeah, just so many, it's just detail upon detail upon detail that it just seems... Like, yeah, I just can't say it enough. Like, she doth protest too much. It's just so un- over the top. Like, she's trying to sell it too hard. Well, I was saying, you think, well, you know, you want to be a victim. You want people to feel bad for you. You know, want to be mm-hmm. in public. When it, the sympathy, the balloons, the flowers, we're all happy you're here, yada, yada. And thinking, oh, well, everyone will view me this way. Mm-hmm. And the thing about the... Uh, FBI investigators is they want the truth. They want to solve this. So they're, you know, they're probably very gentle and thoughtful, but they're also not idiots. Right. So when you say, well, they branded me because I tried to escape. And then in another interview, they go, now tell me about the branding again. And then you go, yeah, well, it's because they said the buyer liked it. It's like, make a note. Mm -hmm. And then the, you know, two months later go, tell me about the branding again. Oh, well, you know, I made too much noise that one day and they came in branding. They're like, take a note. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you may think that you're real, real smart, but they got a lot of records. And I noticed in the affidavit, it said she gave us, uh, she came in and gave an interview, all of which was recorded and transcribed. Mm-hmm. All of which was recorded and transcribed. So it's like they have page after page of what you've told them. And n- not even the most cunning of a maker-upper could remember each lie that they've told. No, especially when they're so detailed and over the top. you got to keep your lies simple if you want to be able to keep track of them. Mm-hmm. After multiple meetings with an FBI artist and approving several drafts of drawings, the wanted posters featuring professional FBI sketches of Sherry's abductors were finalized and disseminated on September 22, 2017. According to the FBI, For several months and even years, Redding and the nearby community were on the lookout for two Hispanic women. Multiple tips were given to law enforcement by the community about suspicious-looking Hispanic women. Just a month later, on October 26, 2017, Sherry sat down with agents and reviewed mugshots of two possible suspects and Facebook photos of a third suspect that were collected based on tips from the public. Sherry did not identify the first two suspects, but claimed the third had eyebrows similar to one of her captors. This is how people get wrongfully convicted. 100%. That's what is so infuriating about this is... Everything she's doing is why actual survivors of abuse don't come forward and are scared to come forward. And also Mm -hmm. why innocent, marginalized communities are thrown in jail. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, one of the, you know, you trace it back to like what the most insidious thing is. And it's giving this description because if you're a member of the public, an innocent third party member Mm -hmm. of the public, and you see a wanted poster and it looks like, a person that you run into, you know, somebody you work with or somebody that you see mm-hmm. at the gym or whatever, you know, you think, well, all I can say is that this person abducted a lady and this the person I know looks like them and I can call it, you know, call in a tip or you shut your mouth and don't say anything. Uh, but but if I you think see an FBI, I mean, most people an think, average oh, this citizen. is an FBI flyer. Like, this is legit. You wouldn't think this is completely made up. 
No, you think it's it says on there. Are, it doesn't just say this is a person we may want to talk to him in, in in connection with it. It says these people are armed and yes, dangerous. Yeah. And so if you think, oh my gosh, this person's rolling around with a gun, they're willing to snatch people off the street. I gotta call I'm it. I'm doing in. a favor. I'm doing you my know? community service by calling it in. And then the agents go, okay, well, let's get their pictures off social media. Let's get their mug shots, whatever. We'll take it to the victim. So it's like you, this chain of events gets set off where it's kind of everybody's, you know, doing what the average blank would do. The average mm-hmm. citizen, the average investigator, whatever would do. And meanwhile, an innocent people's mug shots and uh, Facebook photos are getting caught up in it. Mm-hmm. From the day she was found on November 24th, 2016 through September 2019, Sherry was interviewed by law enforcement officials at least three times, and either she or her husband contacted investigators with additional pieces of information at least seven times. Some additional information came about in Sherry's therapy sessions, for which the people of California were footing the bill. Another piece of information came from a visit to Dick's Sporting Goods, where Sherry shut down near the gun section and told her husband a black Ruger revolver was the gun involved in her kidnapping. Her husband also called in with a specific description of a coffee table that Sherry had remembered, a piece of evidence that would come in handy for investigators down the road. He also had her sketch the room she was in. He was, like, getting color pencils out and being like, what color was the carpet? They were calling her carpet. He would call up repeatedly throughout the FBI uh, affidavit. It would be like, Keith Papini called us and told us another piece of information that she remembered. He also said this and this happened, and she remembered. She called them and said she recognized a spoon that was used to burn her, that she thought that the burns on her arm could have been caused by a spoon. And she even sent them a picture of how the spoon matched up against a scar. He said that when she got laser surgery on her or not laser surgery, but like a laser treatment to help with the branding scar, that the smell of the hair burning, that she had a panic attack and started crying in the laser place. And he called up and told the FBI like, Oh man. So, you know, when she, she got branded, it was the burning hair really sent her off. And so also because she had all these severe reactions and shutting down and freaking out in the Dick sporting goods, freaking out the laser treatment, the California victims compensation fund will only pay for so many therapy sessions. Well, she got her therapist to write in and say, she has such severe PTSD. We need to extend her sessions. So gross. So, so gross. And it's in if Keith knows nothing, I I feel bad for him because yeah. he sounds like a husband that is just trying to make sense of what happened to his wife and is just going doing everything he can to like mm-hmm. uh, help find who did this to her. Yeah, and I'm sure the agents say, "Hey, any piece of evidence, right. anything you remember will help us." Always call it in. Don't hesitate. Here's my phone number. And so he thinks, oh, well, the the gun. She, she remembered the gun. She said that in one of her therapy sessions, she remembered that they held her down and poured a sticky substance in her mouth and that she had used her underwear to wipe it out. So maybe there was a substance and they could trace it and it was on the underwear. So any there wasn't. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but... It was a lot of stuff like that where mm-hmm. maybe they'd be talking about it or whatever. She'd say, oh, this is what we talked about in therapy today. And he'd go, okay, well, we better call the agents. Yeah. The more information I give, the more believable all this will be. Yeah. Or they'll catch the people, yeah. I think, yeah. is what he was thinking. Yeah. Though the Papinis were cooperating, the investigation seemed to stall. The SUVs shown to Sherry were never quite right. And the mugshots of possible suspects brought in from tips to the FBI never exactly fit Sherry's memory. Then, the FBI got a break in the case using the cutting-edge technology of familial DNA. What was revealed next would be a truth stranger than fiction. 
So what do we think? It's thorough. She's got a thorough story. Very thorough. And, uh, you know, supportive spouse, family, a community around her. And it. she said that there's two women on the loose, specifically two Hispanic women who wear hoop earrings and love mariachi music. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a racist caricature of suspects on the loose. It does. That she's made up. Um, and I think she thinks she's smarter than she is. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I mean, we'll get into in the next episode everything that unravels next, which is uh, wild. But, yeah, it's um, without getting giving too much away in that one, I think she definitely thinks that she is smarter than she is. But I also think she has shown a history of this type of behavior where Mm -hmm. whatever it is, attention seeking. um, I mean, I think even if at bare minimum it's attention seeking, it sounds Mm -hmm. like she's definitely got some mental health problems going on. Mm -hmm. So should she be in therapy? Absolutely. Should the residents of California be paying for it? No. Yeah. Sounds like it. No. Yeah. But she, um, whatever has happened in her life or, her brain has caused a series of events from when she was very young that um, she's just wants to be a victim. She wants people to yeah. think she's a victim. It's hard. I would imagine it'd be hard to be friends with, related to, knowing a person who has inconsistent stories that are so outrageous because the rare chance that it may be true. You know, yeah. it sounds like it's not. But, you know, if you have... 15 stories about horrific things happening to you and one of them is mm-hmm. true you know that's now hard for you as a family member friend spouse whatever to be like i don't know is it any- wait a minute yeah because you made that up about that guy and then that guy's told you know you told that guy about someone else doing something to you that you know it's a it's this big web kind of thing that you don't know what to believe but all you can do is say my wife was taken when she came back she was covered in bruises I believe her what she's telling this extremely intricate story. Yeah. There was also an incident that it came out in 2017, but it had actually happened in 2003 where Sherry's mom had called 911 because Sherry was harming herself and then blaming the injuries on her mom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, multiple friends and boyfriends had also said she always said her family was abusing her and, so even I think the family n- knew of her propensity to to do this kind of thing. So it makes you wonder when she did go missing and all of this is going on, does a little part of you say, uh, is this did you, true? Did you see, there's a thousand clips on this case and I know each of us have seen stuff. The other one hasn't, but did you see the one with her parents where her mom's saying, all we want is for Sherry to come home. No, I haven't. And she's she's saying like we can't believe someone took our daughter and she's the the language she's using does sound like she's talking to a third party. But then at the end she's like just come home. Your babies miss you. Just oh. come home. And it's not I'm not saying her mom knew anything like right. had actual knowledge of anything that was going on, but if like you said, if something like this happened before, you may, and like she ran away and said she was kidnapped, but really she was with friends. You might have a gut feeling like, "Hey, if you're wa- if you're yeah. watching this and you're okay, the kids are very upset. Yeah. Please come back." But 
I may be reading into it. I may be reading into the language and the intonation, but it's, I took it to be, she's the, the mom is saying, we want her to be home safe. We just want, but at the very end, she's like, just come home. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, yeah. she wanted to do, she could, right? Like in theory, you think somebody's been kidnapped. Well, you know, they, they, they would come home if they could, but they can't. But she's saying it almost like, you have the power yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Moms, it's that mom instinct, that gut instinct. Well, and she ran away when she was in high school. Her parents were there for that. Her parents, yeah. I mean, her mom saw that she was harming herself and then saying that, no, you did this to me and telling others that happened. So I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility that they would, part of them would think um, she may have done this herself. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Well, there's so much more to come. Oh, so much. It's uh, It only gets wilder. So we will get it's into illegal. all of that in the uh, in next week's episode. Exactly. We have um, a live show coming up this Friday, a live improv show. We are. We're doing an improv show at Dallas Comedy Club. I have a show at 8. Oh, yeah. I'm in a uh, two-person show with Lindsay Power. Oh, nice. We're doing... Uh, a mono scene, which means we just do one single scene for the whole time, um, and then mix them up with some other teams, and then you and me and Tommy and a dream team of amazing people, including Scriven, who you all may have heard on our Patreon mm-hmm. episode on Winchester Mystery House. Scriven Bernard, we're doing Hot Dish, which is a mix them up of very funny uh, people, and we just do a show that will never be seen again. It's one and done. It's a one and done. Scriven's also about to move to Portland, so come Ugh. out and wish him well. Yeah, it's going to be fun. We have the ticket link up on um, our website. Also, Heather, yes. April 15th. Yes. What are we doing? We're going to Austin. Moon Tower Just for Laughs Austin Comedy Festival. We are in a killer lineup with some amazing comedians, acts, podcasts, whatnot. It is a Dream Team lineup, but you can come and see us on April 15th. Friday, 7.30 p.m. at Parish. It is uh, 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. Get you in the door. You can get a badge if you want and you see a bunch of acts. Or if you just want to slide on in and see us and then bounce, 20 bucks. Uh, we'll we'll be there. And we have a Austin, uh, Austin-tastic subject matter that I'm thrilled to discuss. It's going to be a fun one. Oh, man. It's going to be a hoot. So, yeah. Go to Sinistero.com slash live shows and it will all be on there. Plus, just come to Austin. It's a fantastic town. Love it. Such good food. Uh, Brown Town will be there. Brown Town uh, will be in the house as well as will George Brown. Lots oh. of lots of Browns will be there. So the Brown trifecta. I'm hoping to see um, a lot of friends in the area, and um, you know, friends. I'll, I'll, everyone's a friend that listens to the show, so Come on I down. consider. But I hope that um, we get some people that have never heard us too, that are just there for the festival, and maybe we make some new friends that way too. True. If you're in the show audience, look to the person next to you. If they have a badge on, be like, oh, you must be a comedy, a comedy aficionado. Are you familiar with Sinister? I'd give them a pitch. I'm just I'm just saying <laughs> we need a street team. Be I, great, uh, so. I got five new subscribers. I watched them subscribe at the cantina in Disneyland. Wow. Yeah, thank you. The uh, you Star Wars working. brings everyone together. <laughs> I was it, I we everyone was talking because you sit at a table with other people and everybody was just talking and somebody said, like, what are y'all here for? And I told them. And then they're like, what? And two of them were, um, like, 30-year-old women. I was like, y'all are the tar- target demographic. And they were like, we love true crime. And they pulled out their phones, subscribed right there. So if you're listening, and I sat by you um, at the cantina, we had, a, we had a lovely conversation. And thank you. <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> 
We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tiers, a special shout-out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, which the most recent one was on Selkies, and we're going to have one in April. We just It's only the it's only the first oh, week. Oh, yeah. We'll, well, it's coming. It's coming. It's coming. And then patron-exclusive video and audio content, including we do Am I the Assholes, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, Wedded Drama, True Crime Headlines, Unpopular Opinions, and more. You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. For patrons not in the U.S., you also have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. We also have our monthly live stream, which I think we forgot to mention, but we got that in addition to the Q&As, too. Oh, it's a, a hoot and a holler. And Last holler. one we did was wedding theme. Thank you for yes, the indulgence. As my, It was my wedding week. It was a great way to spend it with um, Patreon subscribers who uh, we shared some wild wedding stories. Oh, they were great. And if you want to hear that, you can go. And all of that is um, the replays are available immediately when you sign up. So you can even if you weren't there live, you can still watch them. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. And if you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Shop in the top banner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We also have YouTube and TikTok. Christy, where are you at on the computer? I am on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and on TikTok and Twitter at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world and on Instagram and TikTok at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Corianne. Kate. Lisa Markowski. Stephanie Berry. Tara Harris. Anna. Laura McCuskey. Annie Stetson. Abigail Carr. Lauren DePasqual. Lindsay Garin. Maria. Amy Gibbs. Kalia Riviera. Mads. Erica. Marcella Kreika. Kayla. Jeanette Duthoy. HippieChick64 at Yahoo.com. Holly Jameson. Justine Tucker. Angelica Espinoza. Vania. Mandy. Ava. Amy Garney. Kendra Warren. Shana Moreno. Alexandra Gibson. Brianna McIntosh. Karina Lingroth. Heather Caputo. Sam Marshall. Britt M. Hayden A. Rogers. Kathleen Logan. Maggie Biller. Tamara Deutsch. Tara Grant. Bree Armstrong. Laura Wood. Anna Lamandola. Jennifer. 
Millie Melendez, Joanna Taggart, Dana Harrow, Leslie Davis, Benazir Nurani, Nicole Letersky, Jennifer Dolan, and Sarah. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. We sincerely appreciate all that you do. We couldn't do this without you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Wahaha. <laughs> Sinning.